This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. I've got Vivian Langford on the line to tell us all about the show today. Hi, Viv, can you hi. hear me? Yes, hi, Andy. How are you Lovely going? to hear you, too. You, too? Um, what have we got on for this evening? Well, tonight it's two items, and I think listeners will really like the second one as much as the first one, so please hang in there for, you know, 5.30. The first person we're speaking to is Amanda Cahill, and um, she's the founding director of a Centre for Social Change. She's an anthropologist, and she's worked extensively overseas in developing countries. And I met her at the Eco City Summit, where we'd both just seen Al Gore's new film showing harrowing pictures of people nearly drowning. And she said, um, well, you know, she thinks that the climate crisis is going to force a lot of um, sort of people kind of having to trust other people who are just perpetuating the system, people who might have read the book Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein has said that, you know, in capitalism, in a crisis, there's a lot of people who rush in and just take advantage, and some of these people already have no electricity or running water, and, you know, they're already the victims, she said, of, you know, colonialism and racism, and she was really quite distressed about the way things are going for the poorer countries. And she said, um, uh, we talked to us, you know, a comfortable Australian, she said a lot of people around here have gone from climate denialism to climate nihilism, you know, just throwing up their hands and saying, oh, you know, there's nothing you can do, it's all finished anyway, and that's a really cheap, uh, poor Mm. attitude, you know. Yeah, to cop out. And and so uh, it's a very thoughtful interview, and Amanda Cahill's a really wonderful person, she's a friend of BZD, she's done a lot of work with communities here as well, and it's really worth just sitting still and listening to her, because she's just got a lot of thoughts about the bigger picture. And then the second second item, there's some lovely music in this as well, um, as speakers, and I went to a a kind of a a forum for Pacific leaders. They'd come to Australia... With, um, by courtesy of the Edmund Rice Centre to sort of learn about leadership, you know, how to get projects up and running. Yeah, cool. And they're all, you know, mature people who, who already are doing a lot in their own country in Kiribati. We hear from a school teacher there called Mauricio, and he, he said, look, you know, you have these king tides and they don't really wash away the school, but they wash away all the school books or damage the school books and the children are falling behind. Yeah. And it's this constant worry of the land being... Um, washed away and then another person from Kiribati is called Pelanise Alofa and she's got this great project to get a biodigester she said they've got pigs roaming around and what they need to do is corral the pigs and get the excrement and use it for the biodigester so they don't have to pay so much money for diesel which you know feels kind of yeah renewable solution and she was very keen on that and then we hear from Phil Glendinning from the Edmund Rice Centre and Tom Zabriki and he made a film, the two of them made a film together at, in Kiribati called The Hungry Tide. So if listeners haven't seen that, maybe The Hungry Tide will, will link that to the podcast. Great. Sounds like an action-packed show. It's action 
action-packed and it's very thoughtful and there's this gorgeous music. Please stay listening to me. You'll love it, Andy, this lovely singing. And these people, they just, there's that six and they just stood up and sang. No, I've I had a little make... bit of a sneak peek at it. It does sound incredible. It, it sounds nice and they're just people singing and you really feel that those people have got an intact community. They don't have to worry about climate nihilism mm. or saying it's all we're all screwed or something. They don't think like that. They have a very coherent community and it's a terrible shame if they have to lose it all and get thrown to the four corners of the earth. Yeah. Well, shall we get this underway I then? So. Thanks, Andy, for doing all of that. And no worries. Thanks, thanks to the listeners. Oh, and salut Babette, who will be listening. Yeah. <laughs> I'll add that at the end as well. Say that at the end as well. Thanks very much, Andy. No worries, Viv. All right, here we go. This is Amanda Cahill. Enjoy. We're back at the EcoCity World Summit. I've met Amanda Cahill. She's presenting a session this afternoon about moving from consumer cities to eco-cities. And I'd like her to, first of all, tell us what she's going to say, but then we might talk a bit more generally because we've just both seen a a presentation by Al Gore, which was very dynamic and rather disturbing. So, Amanda, welcome to the Beyond Zero show again. And please just tell us uh, what you're going to say this afternoon. Um, I want to pick up two issues that I don't think are talked about enough at conferences like this. So often when we you know, talking about the changes that need to be made, people focus on the technical side or they focus on what governments should do and formal processes. I want to pick up on what I think is actually underneath um, why things aren't moving as fast as they could be. We have the technology, we have the money, we have the resources, we have the processes, especially in a country like Australia. So why aren't we seeing things move faster? Why are we seeing things go backwards? Like, why this year were we talking about clean coal? Like, and it's actually not even commercially viable. The markets say that. Um, so I want to pick up on two things. One is why we can't just focus on just personal change and behaviour change um, and what goes on at an individual level that's actually stopping people even from making simple changes in their lives, even when they're encouraged to. Um, but also then talk about the political level of that and the deep issues that really require new um, social, political and economic systems. Um, If we actually want to create a better world, not just deal with the crisis at hand, Mm. but actually create something that leaves us all better off. Yeah. We have to think long term. That's the thing. That's the problem because we are dealing always with a crisis and we leave things until they are a crisis. Um, I've recently done one on biodiversity and there are so many species now that are on the brink of extinction and we knew about it for a long time and uh, people have researched them. One academic said to me, well, we've researched these animals to death and now they are dead. <laughs> oh, it was very shocking because this is this uh, willful not knowing. Um, you said before that we've moved from climate denialism to climate nihilism. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I'm not saying that. A few other people are saying that, that yeah. and that's a concern. And we were just talking about Al Gore's speech, and it was amazing mm. and inspiring as mm. usual. But he put up so many images that are showing us that the really severe catastrophic effects of climate change are already happening. He's talking mm. about the worst droughts in a 1,000 years, worst storms, and just showed picture after picture. And I just felt into that for myself as someone who knows a lot of that stuff and works in the area. So generally I feel hopeful because I get to meet amazing people doing this work. But I could feel myself shut down at the immensity of that problem and realise just how how big it is and how much we're squabbling with each other. So how Mm. do we 
move beyond that and not just leave it up to the market as mm-hmm. well, which is kind of, in a way, his point at the end was, don't worry, there's been this huge, unprecedented uptake of solar wind, etc. So it's already happening, yeah. regardless of who's in the White House. Um, but, you know, that I don't think that's enough in itself because it's what sort of... Yes, if we, you know, it's what sort of economy are we actually not just dealing with the impact of climate mm-hmm. change, but what are we enabling to happen by leaving action too late? So to give you an example, like we have a choice around, say, our electricity market right now. In a time of disruption, in a time of change, we have to build new, actually build new stuff, like mm-hmm. new infrastructure. The amazing thing about that new infrastructure, if we take renewable energy, is a lot of it can be very decentralised, which enables different kinds of uh, local governance opportunities to control your own energy locally, Mm -hmm. to share the benefits of that and the profits from that, rather than a large company like, say, for example, AGL, Mm -hmm. um, to corner the market on that. So AGL is a really good example because with their new ad campaign talking about all that they're doing with renewable energy, fantastic. Mm -hmm. I want every energy company to do that. Um, But they have a stated aim that they want to corner 80% of the Australian market by being an early adopter, by actually acting on this before everybody else. And that concerns me. And I think that's a point at which we have to have a discussion about what economic systems are we creating? Are we just concentrating power in even fewer hands? Are we setting ourselves up for people to get away with quite drastic actions in the name of acting on climate change because it's almost too late? Mm -hmm. So now you need to trust us and, and we'll come up with these bigger technological solutions that we'll take out of the control of of ordinary citizens. And I think that's fueling a lot of the political dis, uh, instability that we're seeing and questions about the kind of economy and where we're going with this. Yes, yeah, so it's not really climate denialism, it's just scepticism that our system as it is can actually solve these problems. And I can add something about AGO. I heard the uh, at their AGM um, someone in the one of the shareholders raised the issue that they were actually on a path to assuming that the world would reach four degrees of warming which you and I both know is unlivable and he said yes we're doing that well we can, no one's stopping us and the other thing at another meeting I went to, um, Andy Vesey from AGO got up and said oh well we're keeping our coal assets in the Latrobe Valley going till 2050. That's beyond my lifetime, I think. So with these big companies, we really don't trust them and they're part of a system which we have all come to start despairing of, this sort of barbaric capitalism. It's not the sort of welfare state capitalism of the 1950s where hospitals and schools were being rolled out and there was a sort of a tension between the you know, welfare state governments and say the communist governments they had to compete but now there's no competition and I wonder if we're entering this rampant sort of world which Al Gore described you know China and India churning out uh, solar panels and everything but it's not going to really necessarily solve the problems we've got and in the long term they're not going to create a, a sort of society that we'd want to live in is that Does that fit with what you're thinking? Well, we do need India and China and everybody else to get on board. We do need the rollout Mm. of renewable energy and to get off burning fossil fuels as Mm. fast as possible. I guess I'm inspired by the work of Naomi Klein and the Shock Doctrine and her new book, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, which is basically Mm. reviewing Mm. what she wrote in Shock Doctrine, Mm. saying when there's these times of crisis, capitalism can take advantage of that really quickly and actually take away more rights. Um, And I think that's the question that in conferences like this we don't talk about. Yes. We had, um, was it Johanna, uh, Joanne? 
uh, woman from Durban in South Africa. Oh, uh, Deborah Roberts. Deborah Roberts, sorry. Yeah. Deborah Roberts, yeah. yeah. I'm finding her really interesting. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's a co author yeah. um, of the mm. new IPCC oh. report. Mm. Um, but she really is, in, I've seen her speak now twice in another yeah. session. And she's being disruptive because she's saying, you know, we talk about these nice sanitised processes and agreements that are top-down, but it doesn't fit for... She's talking about African communities mm. and her context of working because the context and the reality is so different. So mm. when we're talking about eco-cities and development and green spaces, she's talking about areas where... I think she said there's over 700 informal settlements in Durban yeah. alone. It's a completely different system with a completely different culture and logic and in an informal economic setting mm. but it's more than that in a break when I was talking to her it's not just that the systems don't work it's actually about power it's actually about if the, where the issues are and the people who are going to suffer the most are the poorest people mm. in the world mm. that's not an accident um, and there's so we've got layers of colonialism of racism of poverty on top of all of this and it's a that's a time bomb waiting yeah. to go off if we don't actually address the fact that the social majority most of the world you know don't have access to clean water yeah. you know the things that are actually going to help us deal with climate change and change our standard living and give us a chance at having something better are the basics around that we know work for development yeah. and, a cl and a safe society. And what happened after the Second World War, a lot of that development came out of the chaos of the Second World War and going, we actually need to give people, we need to have more equality, we need to give people a better standard of life because that lessens the chance of crazy wars happening. Yeah. Clean water, good education, good healthcare systems, reproductive rights for women to take, get the population under control. This is the basics and these will actually have positive impacts around all the things that we know we need to do around yeah. climate change, at the same time as preparing to deal with the effects of that and what's going to happen to all of those people who are going to become climate refugees, yeah. are already becoming climate refugees. Mm -hmm. So I think those are, those are the radical kinds of questions that kind of get skimmed over the surface, but we're not really talking about the real political and economic implications of a changing world order here. Yeah. Well, I think there's not that many guests here who could talk like Deborah Roberts, and she was disruptive. It was so welcome, wasn't it? And she, people got a, a clap around what she said because she said, like, the green um, funds, you know, from the United Nations, the power still resides in the United Nations. They're handing out money, but they won't hand it out for projects that the people really need or really want. They'll hand it out for the approved projects, as we've had with the big institutions before. And I was thinking recently, I'm, I'm so impatient in Australia now because I feel we should already have 100% renewable cities and we've got the education here and the expertise here to have installed all of that and we should be exporting it, exporting renewable energy, but not only that, expertise to help our, our neighbouring countries to leapfrog, to do that leapfrog. We should be helping them. That's the sort of aid. Meanwhile, we're just cutting our foreign aid budget and putting up more defences against climate re refugees. But I was in Malaysia recently and I went to an energy efficiency conference in Malacca and who were there these great big tall Danish yeah. people who were giving um, help and expertise to the Malacca government to to save lots of money in energy efficiency in all their hospitals and, and government buildings I thought yes I would love to see I would be feel really proud if I saw Australian delegations going to countries like that that are, they want to get on to the next step and we could help them that's why I feel sort of I'm I just can't stand it when we we go to these sessions where it's sort of timid ambition and yeah. let's let's just all reduce our number of plastic bags or something. I can't bear it. Yeah. Well, that's actually um, 
what actually got me involved in BZE in, in 2010, 2011 actually was I was taking groups of engineers to India to visit tiny little community development projects and look at appropriate technology solutions to challenge engineers in Australia to think about how they work with community and what their role as engineers are when communities can come up with more appropriate solutions to a lot of issues. And all these places we were going to, I was seeing like tiny little solar panel systems on the roofs of houses in slums or in the foothills of the Himalayas, as well as huge wind farms going in. And they were putting in huge amounts of renewable energy across India at the time. And I just went, just a minute. Why are we doing this in Australia? Like this, like this is not that long ago. But I was just like, this is crazy. Like if <laughs> India is doing this, why aren't we doing it? And and that's when I started asking these questions. Yeah. But you know, and it was villages owning their own energy and actually taking the profits of that and putting it into funds that women could then take out um, small revolving loans and and do improvements to the houses, set up small businesses. Mm. That's energy democracy. That's creating economic independence. Mm. And those are very threatening ideas. And I think, actually, these are the things we're not talking about as to why decisions just don't get made or why things get delayed or what's really going on. We focus on the big corporate evil interests, but there's actually a whole lot of stuff that is... We're pushing the boundaries around the systems about how we make decisions, Mm. how we work together, the responsibility I take on as a citizen versus leaving it up to the government. Mm. And that's scary for us to actually come up with different ways of working together. Mm. Um, And we're not used to it yet. We need to develop the skills. We actually need support for people to learn how to work together differently, Mm. to do democracy differently, and we we can't just put people out on their own. They actually need some Mm. support around that. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, we're talking to Amanda Cahill here, uh, listeners, and I forgot to mention she's a great friend of Beyond Zero Emissions and an engineer, aren't you? No, no, no. Oh. I'm, a, I'm an anthropologist originally. Oh. Oh, that's right. Okay. I have inter- worked with a lot of engineers. <laughs> and we've interviewed her before. I should know. Um, Amanda, we, I'd like to finish. Look, we're talking about big themes now, and this thing about decoupling, Al Gore said it, we need to decouple growth from fossil fuels. I wonder how this will work. A lot of people are talking about degrowth, circular economies, ideas like that. A lot of people say the people are following Jeremy Corbyn or people who wanted Bernie Sanders, they want that kind of more government that's beneficial to people, that gives benefits, that, that, that considers the well-being of people well into the future, that sort of idea. I don't know if we could call it socialism or eco-socialism or uh, it probably none of those names fit it. It's some new thing emerging. And Clive Hamilton has recently been giving symposiums about his thing and he, he's edging us to a new definition of how we relate to the earth. It's almost like a he calls it a new human responsibility, a new relationship. So what are your ideas around that, that decoupling and growth? And um, From a really pragmatic point of view is, um, and for a long time it's been recognised, there are limits to growth for a start. We live on one planet. So the rate of economic growth, which is dependent on the resources that we use and consuming and making more stuff is actually just crazy. It's impossible. It's insane. Mm. It was interesting. I was at a G20 event when it was in Brisbane a few years ago and they had the head chief economist from one of the big investment banks who advises presidents and prime ministers. And he projected onto the wall in 2050 what they expect the list of 
countries and their growth rates. And he was basically saying the world order wouldn't change too much, except Europe was going to go down the ladder a bit. Um, Asia and Africa were going to be the new centres of growth. Um, and was still projecting like crazy, I can't remember now, but it was still like 6% growth for China or something. And I just went, I, I had to ask the question, I'm like, when you're coming up with these figures, how are you calculating in there the impact of climate change and the fact that we're looking at all sorts of constraints on resources? I'm not just talking about oil and fossil fuels, I'm talking about... Um, what is it? Phosphorus in the yeah. soil. Like it's like all these peak things coming mm. to a point now, right now. And you're talking about 2050. Mm. And he stumbled and went, "Oh, uh, yeah, no, um, no, I'm just talking about economic. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, no, uh, no, we didn't take that into account. Yeah. I just went, the planet actually can't sustain that. So from a really pra- pragmatic view, um, things are changing whether we like it or not. The really interesting thing for me, though, is even in really conservative coal communities I'm working with, when I sit down one-on-one with people and we start talking about where has this place come from, what are the different industries and jobs and how has that changed over time, really interestingly, people start talking about how they used to be more resilient. Mm -hmm. Like 20 years ago, their small town may not have been more connected, as connected as it is now, but they actually had more services. The money stayed locally. Um, they had things like cooperatives. They had things like where people would put in mutual aid or people yeah. pool their resources to fund things locally. Right. And then they start reminiscing about them and go, and actually we had a better community. We used to talk to each other. Mm. And they're like, what is the economy for if people have a shit standard, sorry, <laughs> swearing, but standard of life? Like, wh- how do we let it get like this? Yeah. And these are conservative people kind of going, just a minute, what's mm. the role of government if they're not actually looking out for us and they're looking after companies instead? They're not building the infrastructure we need for the future. Why have we let ourselves get so isolated? Why don't we look after each other anymore? Why is it that we've got such high depression and suicide rates? So, you know, you, you hear these lovely things around gross national happiness and we mm-hmm. need to like start thinking about well-being and it seems like this nice touchy-feely thing mm-hmm. that hippies say, like me... Um, but actually people on the ground are feeling it. Yeah. And I think that's an opening to have that conversation of not just we need more jobs, what kind of jobs mm. do we want? When I was in Appalachia last year, you know, where coal has been in decline and there's basically no coal left in some of these places, mm. and they left it too late. They didn't have the plan. They didn't have the future planning. And there was so much poverty already in those communities. Mm. So when coal left, it's opened them now to the biggest industries looking at logging, um, privatised prisons where they ship in oh. prisoners from other parts of the country yeah. um, and call centres that actually aren't going to employ local people. So in oh. a way that you end up with worse industries, more extractive, worse jobs, or if, if you can get local jobs mm. in those areas. So these are the sorts of questions we yeah. need to be starting to talk about, not just more jobs and more growth, mm. but growth for whom? What kind of growth? What kind of jobs? Are we... What kind of life are people going to be leading at, mm. on the other side of this? Yeah. And reclaiming our ability to do it, like those small communities, the self-sufficient, reclaiming our self-sufficiency and our ability. Oh, well, so it's brought us back to the nihilism again, hasn't <laughs> it? You're, neither, you're not a denialist, but you might be a nihilist because you've, you've just you know, swapped your coal mining community for a private prison. But the difference is we do have different opportunities, and, yeah. and that's why I get excited about the zero emissions, and that's what I talk to communities about. It's like small, tiny rural communities. You know, we have potential for decentralised energy systems. 
um, waste systems, um, you know, land use practices to absorb carbon out of the atmosphere. These are all things that actually can benefit regional areas. They are creating, you know, and then you bring in things um, like Jeremy Rivkin's work around not just, it's not romanticism of the past and go back to the old ways. You can't do that. We actually have new opportunities in the way that we can be connected. We have the internet. If you connect the internet with decentralised energy systems, with 3D printing, Mm -hmm. really interesting things can start to happen Mm -hmm. that there's a lot more local community control. So, Can you give us an example where it might be happening or a place where you've been impressed to see some developments like that? I reckon you should come to the session with... um, Jose and Sharon Ede this afternoon because they're going to talk about some maker labs and, yeah. and things like that around supporting local manufacturing and I think they'd be good to talk to about that. Okay, this is I'll report to you later from that session. So we've been talking to Amanda Cahill from a group called The Next Economy. Do you just want to tell us what The Next Economy is? Um, yeah, so most people would know me from the Centre for Social Change, which has been going for five years. We worked out that actually all of our work now is with communities around economic change and we wanted a new name to reflect that. So mm-hmm. with the next economy and really we're working at that local level with communities to look at the new economic opportunities and moving towards an economy that's good for people and the planet. So part of that is um, moving towards zero emissions, but it's also looking at economic forms that are better for people that actually redistribute can actually redistribute wealth, can keep local jobs, can keep the money in the local economy. Um, That's not to say there isn't a role for big companies and for government, Mm. but it's to try and have that conversation of what do we want it to look like. And we have the tools to do things differently. So let's experiment. Let's see what happens. Thank you. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At VZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. Beyond Zero Emissions doing fabulous um, publication work very regularly. This item is about the island of Kiribati. They had been doing a six-week course through the Edmund Rice Centre. It was a huge variety of projects. One woman was there uh, preparing the Olympic team. She said they have a famous weightlifter on Kiribati called David Kato Ato. He's a weightlifter and he's a champion. And he's also an advocate about climate change. There was also a young teacher and he was worried about the king tides that were sweeping away the schools or, you know, just sweeping through the schools and washing away their books. The next person to speak was Pelanisi Alofa. She was from a group called Kirikan, which is the uh, Kiribati Climate Action Network. And she was very concerned about the pigs that they were roaming about and that their excrement could actually be used instead of diesel fuel, to power their lights. She said, we can turn this problem of pigs into a solution through a biodigester. And the people who were helping them with that were the University of Bath. They're also the University of South Pacific and the Queensland University have been getting behind these projects. So here we have Pelanese Alofa. We do not accept that people are living in an unhealthy environment because there is no control or management of pigs on Tarawa. We believe, I believe that Tarawa can be very clean, can be very healthy and beautiful if there is proper control of animals and especially pigs. The reality is that so many pigs are roaming around the island. The pig pens are smelly and untidy 
Animals and humans are sharing the same small space of land. Most pigs are tied by the legs, and when they are free or they escape, they destroy the gardens or destroy um, the neighbor's gardens. But the root of the problem, I feel, is the lack of knowledge by local people about the impact of living with animals. If you have a digester, and from a digester it's connected to the home, straight into your stove, that's all. The manure in, yes. Yes. So you can go to different houses. So if the community have one community, like four communities, if we have four community pig pens, people put their pigs together and they get just one bucket mixed with water to put in the digester, you know, it will produce gas. And is that, is that it producing gas? Yes. 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 Is it expensive? For one... The project that USP is doing is like 5,000. And is the local expertise to maintain the digester? And is, it, is the digester powered by electricity? No, no. No, it's just the biogas. The expertise will come from USP. They have them there. So that's why we put capacity building, because they have to train the local people to look after it, and they can do it in other communities. They'll train our people in Kirikan so we can continue to do it in other so communities. So from this, from this um, there will be a refuse eh? from the digester that can go straight into the gardens. We'll, we'll get the funding. school teachers called Mauricio spoke to us about his desire for children to speak better English, to reach higher standards so so they can go to New Zealand or Australia for higher education. And he said teachers were becoming discouraged by just this terrible um, salty water getting into their wells by the school being flooded quite often and the materials being destroyed and damaged. He said he'd like the Australian Prime Minister to come over. He invited him to come to Giribas to see for himself so he would make the transition away from coal and gas. It seemed very innocent and very gentle, this invitation. If only you would come, you would see. Uh, you could have that heart. You know. Heart is very important. I think we know that our government is so much more hard-hearted they can go to the Pacific, but they are not going to see what they don't want to see, which is the climate change that we are exporting. This person is called Mauricio. Actually, we don't have money to, you know, to, to pay him to change and you know, to, to go for uh, to transition. But we, we, just, we can simply say to him that, uh, why don't you come to Kiribati and see for yourself experience and uh, and see the people, the young people mm. who are being uh, affected and some of them have been displaced internally. Okay? They have to move as you've seen in the um, in the presentation. So I think that's we will give him we will invite him to to, to come to Kiribati and, and to see him uh, with his own eyes and uh, and again we will uh, um, uh, 
um, lobby, and uh, we will share with share with him all the stories that we we have uh, shared with you, and uh, may probably it will be uh, he could have that heart. No, heart is very important. Yeah, um, that's a really good point. I mean, nothing quite impacts on you as much mm-hmm. as actually going to Kiribati, mm-hmm. going to Tavalu, <coughs> seeing the reality for yourself. In, in my sort of occasional nightmare dream of dragging Alan Jones there. Then I spoke to a, wa- a lady who travels miles in her work. She's an education officer. She goes all around the scattered islands in the vast ocean. They used to be called the Gilbert Islands. Now they're part of Kiribati. There are 33 inhabited islands with a population of about 113 thousand people. Her name is Rakantai. And these people are not sinking into the ocean. These people are fighting back. And this lady has um, written a poem to her granddaughter. And I'd like you to listen to it. And this is my message to my granddaughter, Rakantai. Rakantai, my heart. I will make sure nothing will happen to you. Grow up on an island the land of your ancestors. Grow up on an island to learn its richness culture. Grow up on an island to strengthen your identity. Grow up on an island to equip you well for the future. Grow up on an island that will remain today and forever. Grow up on an island and that is an islander's right. And she told me that that little baby is three months old today. Yes. Tell us again her name. Um, her name is Ron Roy, and today is a, a third month. It's, it is, I was very happy to compose this poem just in the right time of yes. uh, uh, date, birth date. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say a bit more about the children, your hopes for the children who are going to school in Kiribati now and who will be, you know, old people in the year 2100 but will be gone but what do you hope for them yes and this is my message to my my, my granddaughter not only for my granddaughter but all for all the children in in Kiribati and in the pacific um we they are going to stay on the islands they have to fight for justice they don't want to have debate um but they want justice and fair treatment from the bigger countries like Australia. Now, listeners, most of us won't know what children growing up in Kiribati learn, but I believe there are some exchange programs where Australian children are now going to these islands and sitting there for a couple of weeks and listening and observing, and certainly some children from Kiribati are coming on exchange to Australia and to other countries. But tell us, if you stayed in Kiribati and you were a child, what would you be learning? What are the teachers aiming for? Uh, The main... uh aim for the Ministry of Education is for the students to to have quality education and in the education system uh, we have Western education and the, 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 the Ministry of Education incorporates the traditional skills in, uh, in, into the curriculum to equip the students uh, for, for the future. When they have a chance to go to Australia for further studies or in, some part of the world, they can able to survive and understand things because they have been trained and learned those kind of things in Kiribati, just like um, English and other sort of things that they can help them to 
uh, adapt to the new environment when they have a chance to. What are the traditional skills that the teachers teach them? Uh, the tra- some of the, tra- the traditional skills that the, the student uh, that the, the student have been learning is cultivating papai, cutting uh, tori, fishing, navigation skills. Some only basic skills that can build the student understanding, and they will able to to leave, to leave when they don't have a chance to go to overseas for mm-hmm. further studies. They can live on in, yeah. on the islands. Okay. And I saw in your photos uh, quite a lot of mangrove planting. So they're doing learning skills for the sort of climate future as well, aren't they, to preserve the coastline? Yes. Now they are, they, they, they're really worried about their highlands and their schools. So what they have to do is they understand now because it is part of their curriculum and um, they, they, they are willing to participate in any um, planting mangroves activities that, that would... That will um, help their, their, their highlands from being eroded. Thank you very much. Could you just say your name again? Um, my name is Irakentai Momoete Omoma from Kiripes. Mm-hmm. When we were gathering at the end, Phil Glendinning, who is the main person at the Edmund Rice Centre and who was part of a film called Hungry Tide, he said that perhaps all we're doing is buying time and you could see that those people didn't want to leave their islands. They didn't want this to be the end, though, you know, really, you look at the climate change that's locked in, it looks like some of these frontline islands really are near the end. But Phil Glendinning said, let's try to buy some time. They say a third or 40% of the Netherlands is lower than Kiribati. It's got to enable the people who are prepared to mobilise their resources to build up the island. Could it it be so here? The technology exists, but the resource and the commitment doesn't. And that's not about Kiribati, that's about the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's treating the symptoms and not the causes. Of course, of course. There's this race between yeah, climate sure. change yeah, and yeah, right. yeah. yeah. It might be for at least giving them time. Yes, time. Buying time. time. It's yeah. buying time. And the Chinese aren't buying time, they're buying, buying power and influence. Yeah. But, but certainly it's buying, it would buy a bit of time to address the main causes. The last person I spoke to at the conference was Tom Zubriki, who's an Australian film director, and one of his films that listeners might remember is called A Hungry Tide, and we interviewed one of the people in it called Phil Glendinning, and now Tom's here, and uh, we're at a conference about um, Pacific Island and climate change, but the main people who are here are from Kiribati. So, Tom, tell us just your reflections on a few years later after The Hungry Tide, how you're thinking and in... Uh, reference to the people we've heard today from Kiribati. Well, it's it's the climate is one thing in Kiribati, but the other thing is nation building too. And uh, there's always been the issue of people in the developing world who perhaps are falling behind in, in some ways and not being able to um, pick themselves up and actually um, play a leadership role within their own communities to to ma- make to make the country a better place. That's what nation building is about. And so much of today was all about education, all about mm. teaching, all about schools, you know, teachers, teachers who may not be, um, who could be better qualified, mm. for instance, to teach mm. various subject areas, particularly English. Mm. And, and when I noticed actually in Kiribati when I was there that people didn't speak English much at all, you know, it wasn't their first language. But, you know, and I know it's probably something that people tend to maybe... Um, 
put as maybe le- less important than maybe mm. climate change, but I think it's still very important. You know, you've got to articulate your needs and your, mm. you know, your priorities to um, people not only in government, of course, in Kiribati in your own language, but also people in the South Pacific and, and, and people sort of worldwide. That's mm. what Maria was doing, Maria Timon mm. in The Hungry Tide. You mm. know, the, the film was about her actually developing that confidence in herself mm. to be able to do that. You know, she started off um, just really working in a small office in Sydney, having yeah. going backwards and forwards between the islands and Australia, you yeah. know, which, which was her, her new home. But suddenly the focus became the, the climate change conference, the mm. one in Copenhagen. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. this, this was shot back in 2009. Um, and we, she went through that, to that, and... Um, I think it, it, the sense of urgency about doing something yeah. about climate change really got to her, you know, in a big way. And just two years later, because the film was shot over about three years, you can see how confident she was in Cancun, you know, yeah. really. And now, you know, ever since, she's become, mm-hmm. you know, a vital spokeswoman for her own people, yeah. you know. And I think there's like a new generation coming up, you know, um, people here who have been extremely articulate about the issues that um, they sense as being important, not only education but also Mm. the environment um, how to take care of the environment Mm. you know, the the whole thing is is woven really Mm. you know, uh, the thing is in Kiribati people tend to not care much too much about the climate because they think it's normal, you know, Mm. it's only us outside who can measure what's happening, you know (laughs) have a media and every every part of our culture is now I'm glad hyper aware of it but yeah. we're not doing anything that much about curbing the problem and they're not creating the problem the thing I noticed was since the Copenhagen we've had the Paris conference and they, their recent president Anate Tong was a you know coming to Australia and he went to New Zealand and asked them both those governments to stop subsidising coal just subsidising coal and what was the other thing stop new mines but um, uh, New Zealand agreed, but Australia didn't. And I think the more these leaders, why they're focusing on leaders, because you, you need to be able to speak, don't you? You need to be able to speak. And I think, uh, did you get a feeling that they're very disappointed in the world community, that we haven't responded to, despite their eloquence? Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I, I think there's a certain isolation of being in, in Kiribati and not having a lot of contact with people outside mm-hmm. Um, the archipelago, and they've had this opportunity here in mm. Sydney, which I think you know can only serve them mm. best for the future. You know, mm. the young people, you know, we, we'll, we'll see them grow uh, over the years. Mm. You know, and they're being resourced by the Pacific Calling Partnership, which is great. I mean, yeah. a lot of the people in the partnership are volunteers, and, and mm. they're doing their best. Uh, you know, not only um, trying to build capacity there, but also you know highlight the issues with climate change. You know, mm. they go on on a regular basis. To I mean, they've been to Paris. They're going to the next one. Yeah. You know. And it's only a small group, you know. Um, but then again, it's one of many, many groups yeah. um, that, that are building, you know, um, awareness. That's the thing about the climate movement. It's thousands of millions of people and thousands of groups, none of whom seem to really know each other and working seemingly on different things, but it all coheres in this thing of saving the um, stratosphere or the atmosphere, like reducing the climate. If you went back there now, if you were going to frame another film... Like we're so much closer to the really tipping points of every 
global system, and Kiribati is still on the front line. What, what would you, what line would you take now? Well, um, I mean, one of the things that uh, people uh, there are doing is, is uh, taking uh, and building capacity in terms of adaptation. I mean, seawalls is one small thing. Um, but um, it's also building a resilience and confidence and also an awareness. I mean, mm. climate change needs to be taught to the younger the generation, you know, so they become more aware of it because the pace of climate change will increase. And I don't think there's actually a lot of it, that being taught, mm. you know, because um, I don't want, I don't believe that people there should just be, be, be like passive victims, you mm. know. And I know that, that we've got to create change outside, but they've also got to be aware of, of what's, what's going to hit them in the future. It's, mm. so, it's a long, I mean, the, up, the flip side is you don't want to get people too depressed no. either, you know. So, I, th- I think the important thing is, is building culture and building, uh, sorry, building resilience, but also um, because they've got such a rich culture, maintaining that, mm. you know, mm. that's, and that's it's something that might, I think will, we'll, if I go back, I think I'll spend more time um, uh, in, in communities. And well, see I'd love it. to see more of it. I'm yeah. not going to go there because I don't want to fly anymore, yeah. but I'd love to see this lifestyle that they're talking about. They love it so much and they all feel homesick for it, so... Maybe that's the next film. Maybe it is. (laughs) During the afternoon, we heard some beautiful music from the people who had come over from Kiribati to sharpen up their leadership skills. And I could imagine they'd go back and all of them be very persuasive leaders. They were quite solid, uh, confident people. And in this music, you can hear the depth and feeling and solidity of their life and their culture and we saw lots of films and photos of it uh, which I can't convey to you but I can see why they want to preserve something there's an intact culture there and they brought some of it with them in their songs Oh, oh, oh. 
Later that night, as part of a Pacific week at the Australian Museum in Sydney, I saw an extraordinary performance after many dances and songs and group performances from different islands in the Pacific. We heard, we heard this keening, crying noise coming from outside the stage and then two women came on dressed in sort of brown outfits and crying and wailing and then the main person gave a talk and it was about a, a sort of poem. It was Mother Earth and she said, Mother Earth gave me parts that, I, that were not mine to take. Mother Earth gave me everything and all I want is more. I want it all. Mother is growing weak. She is sinking like the islands and our ancestors are enraged. It may be a bit hard for you to hear. I was just sitting there recording it, but it was the most extraordinary, dramatic and heart-rending performance. And I think it contrasts with the previous talks we've heard, which are all very polite, very sweet, very kind, gentle people who just hope that the Prime Minister will come to Kiribati and immediately say, oh, we'll make the transition to away from fossil fuels. I can see that this is disastrous. Well, the contrast is with these people. They're associated with uh, 350.org Pacific Group and they really made a dramatic splash at the museum.
community. Come and see Bart Willoughby's album, Resonance, live on June the 2nd at Fitzroy Town Hall. Doors open at 7pm and show starts at 7.30. Featuring all tracks from Bart Willoughby's latest album, Resonance, a combination of reggae, jazz, opera and Middle Eastern music in celebration of Reconciliation Week. Saturday, June the 2nd. Tickets available through tickyboo.com.au. Check out our Facebook page or website for further details. A 3CR supporter. Uh, I think there's, there's much that can be achieved and we haven't, we've only scratched the surface of our capacity to interact and work together across borders as people, not just as governments. Right now we've left it to governments to do this and they haven't done a very good job, but we as people can do a lot more. The only, the only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take and we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. (laughs) And... You're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them (laughs) and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. I'd like to thank our guests, Amanda Cahill, Mark Butler, Palanisi Palofa, Rakun Tai, and the people of Kiribati. Uh, also, thanks to the Edmund Rice Centre and 350.org Pacific for the drama and filmmaker Tom Zabrowski. And, of course, a big thanks to the radio team, Roger and Teddy, and, of course, the wonderful Vivian Langford, We're going to go out on another couple of songs from the Kiribati Choir and uh, hope you enjoy it. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Stay tuned for more Beyond Zero because as Save Albert Park's taking a break, we'll be playing a few extra shows. So thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR 855 AM. Thank you.